Welcome to the first episode of Beyond a Declaration, What Rights Can Do. I'm your host, Luanda Klaso, and our guest today is William Shoki, the editor of Africa as a Country. The conversations for this podcast are inspired by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted in 1948 in response to the horrors of the Second World War, and which is today considered to be the foundation of all the rights and freedoms to which all people are entitled to. This podcast is brought to you by the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation and Bubblegum Club. However, the opinions and views expressed by the speakers do not necessarily reflect those of these organizations. Welcome to the Beyond a Declaration What Rights Can Do podcast. Thank you. We're going to be talking about the freedom of expression and opinion, and I can't think of a better person right, than you. We met more than five years ago now. And when we met, you were a law student and we haven't seen each other in a while. So perhaps where we can start is you can catch me up on everything you've been doing. And that way our audience can also get to know you. So, yeah, we have met a long time ago. And in that intervening period, quite a lot has changed. You flagged that I started out as a law student and while I was working as a law student, I was based as a researcher at a law firm that is devoted to assisting indigenous communities against multinational mining companies seeking to dispossess them of their land in order to pursue extractive mineral projects. And I think it was over the course of doing that work where I experienced both a deep realization of the importance of law as a tool of advancing the promises of the Constitution, advancing socioeconomic rights, advancing restorative justice, but also became a bit disillusioned with it and didn't really feel that the pace of transformation that could be won in the courts was the pace demanded to remedy a lot of the ills that the country faces. So I experienced a kind of shift in in professional priorities and started writing about what I saw as some of the biggest challenges that the country was facing. Began publishing that writing in a bunch of different venues, and one of them is this popular online Pan-African blog on politics and culture on the continent called Africa as a Country. I started writing for them regularly. After a while, they asked me if I wanted to become a staff writer. After a while, I became the deputy editor, and now I'm the editor of that publication. And at the same time, I'm involved in a lot of different political initiatives. So that's where I'm at presently. And I think even in the work that I'm doing now, you know, I think I'm always facing a semi-existential crises or angst about how best am I contributing to trying to make a difference in the country. But I feel happy that intervening in the public discourse is where I can most usefully invest my time and energy, and that's what I'm trying to do. Thank you so much for that. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot that I knew because I keep up. I've seen your writing, but uh, you filled me in on quite a lot. And I hope our audience now has a sense of who William Shoki is. 
And I must say that I'm so proud of you to be an editor of such a widely read, important online publication. And uh, at your age, especially, and knowing how seriously you take the task. So I just want to get into our subject matter. So for people who don't know you, just to clarify, you are based in South Africa. And when you talk about the constitution, you're advancing the South African constitution. Um, and we have those similarities. And I was a constitutional lawyer. I thought the, the, the best way to uh, contribute was through law. And I also became a little bit disillusioned. And then I started writing and all kinds of things. And in that way, you and your journey resonates with me. And um, now when we talk about disillusionment, right, human rights can be a space of such inspiration, high aspirations, and also disillusionment. And when we talk about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it was adopted in 1948. But in our context, something else was happening in 1948. Just a couple of months, I think it was in August of 1948, the apartheid won the election, right? And um, I find that to be such a paradox because in one moment we're declaring all these universal human rights for all people, whereas in South Africa, that was definitely not the case. How do you see the relationship between the two? You know, uh, often, you know, these aspirational documents like constitutions and uh, these international treaties and charters and all of that can sometimes feel so out of step with the moment. Do you think that strengthens them or it weakens them? That's a very good question. 1948 is a pivotal year, not only as you flagged because the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was created, but the apartheid regime was instituted, the State of Israel was created, and the following catastrophe and dispossession of Palestinian people happened in the same year. So I think it's a it's an interesting year, which I think, as you've very eloquently described, contains all of these contradictions, both aspirations for universal human emancipation and liberation, but at the same time, the institution of oppressive regimes and political orders. So to the question of whether human rights are are something that tend to, to disappoint or whether or not there are this emancipatory tool. I think it's a little bit of both. I think human rights, as I understand it, should not necessarily be the aspiration, which is kind of how we've thought about them in the ordinary political imaginary, that human rights are what we're striving for, they're the ceiling of what our societies should look like. I think human rights are the absolute minimum of what each and every person deserves and is entitled to by fact of their inalienable dignity. And I think it's for that reason that in as much as we live in a society where there is a great chasm between what is represented in the official policy of nation states and multilateral organizations such as the United Nations. And as much as that chasm exists, I don't think it's worth dispensing with human rights altogether. And if anything, it demonstrates their fundamental importance in the sense that we need to have this minimal framework 
because without it, one could imagine that the great suffering and abuses of power and exploitation of people and denial of their basic dignity and worth, one could imagine that would be happening at a scale that is much greater. So I think human rights are this important safeguard to allow a foundation for societies which at the very minimum treat each and every person as a human being. I think it's a great irony that humanity has to legislate policies and protections to ensure that we treat each other as human beings. But that is the unfortunate reality of the world, that the history of this civilization from its beginning is one of war, destruction, death, and so on and so forth. And it's only relatively recently that we entered this human rights paradigm when we started to believe in the so-called rights of man. And obviously, when that began in the 17th and 18th century in the Enlightenment in Europe, these rights were designated for a select category of people that were deemed to be human. And everyone outside of that, namely people of color, indigenous Africans, indigenous Southern Americans, indigenous Americans, indigenous Australians, so on and so forth, were deemed as being subhuman. So they weren't afforded these rights. But it's in struggling for these rights, as we have throughout history, that we reclaim them, we reclaim humanity, and we, we, we pave the way for a society that is concerned not only with the minimum that people should be afforded, but also starts to think of a bigger and broader horizon. How do we think about a society that is human, not just the fact that people are treated with a basic dignity, but in a society that tries to make that basic dignity one that we realize, realize in how we relate to the state, realize in how we relate to our places of work, realize in how we relate to our communities. And also how we relate to this idea that we're going to deep dive into, this idea of freedom of expression and opinion. And I just want to read Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to you. And I just want to know the immediate thought that comes up. Just the immediate thought. Article 19 says, everyone has a right to freedom of opinion and expression. Mm. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media, regardless of frontiers. What comes up? I think what comes up is the tremendous way in which that right is being curtailed and eroded in vast parts of the world. The fact that, to what we were discussing earlier, that it exists in text, but does it exist in practice? It doesn't. And I think it's only goes to show the extent to which we're still caught up in a rearguard battle to secure basic rights and freedoms, not only in the global South, which is much maligned in the media as a place where rights are absent. And of course, there is some truth to that. And if one was to contextualize why that is the case, I think one would find tremendous responsibility on the part of the side making that accusation, i.e. the West. But even in the West itself, we're seeing 
frightening erosion of the rights to freedom of expression and the rights to freedom of expression cynically deployed in order to curtail and crack down upon freedom of expression. So I think that's the immediate thought that comes to mind. And it's a bit sad that that is the first thought that comes to mind. Let me completely agree, but I want to add in another strand here, because if we take it from 1948 and the way that you framed that interesting year, right, where these rights are being declared, but also when you look at what was happening in South Africa with the apartheid state, that one of the tools of oppression is denying people the right to form an opinion, to express. And if you fast forward 75 years later, right, South Africa is no longer an apartheid state. We now consider ourselves a constitutional democracy. We have Mm. a constitution Mm. that enshrines similar rights to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And also when when I look at my sort of reality and how much time I spend online, so many of us wouldn't have the careers that we have, including the two of us, in that there's so much access to getting our voices out there, to connect with voices in the U.S. and other parts of the world, connecting the global south, connecting to Palestine. We know what's happening in Palestine because people are telling us directly. So there's something else happening in that there is a democratization of you know, the space and who can share an opinion and whose opinion is worthy. Can you say something on that as well? Because I I completely agree with you. There are concerns and we'll get to those concerns in a bit, but I also want to highlight the fact that since the advent of the the UDHR in 1948, there's been what I've seen, a widening of this right to expression and opinion. Absolutely, yeah. There's, There's no denying that. I think there's no denying the fact that, as you've correctly pointed out, there's a whole category of people who once upon a time would not even have been afforded the opportunity to protest their lack of access to this right because they were automatically excluded and deemed beyond being able to enjoy it, whether it be people of color, women, sexual minorities, religious minorities, so on and so forth. So the fact that we live in a day and age where speech, in theory, is possible for everyone and everyone can participate in discussion, can express speech, and the fact that this liberty is facilitated by digital communications technology, which I think has had a tremendous effect in our ability to participate in discourse, I think is wonderful. I think that development in itself is almost as significant as the creation of a rights framework because that it's so easy to connect on online platforms like Twitter or X, formerly known as Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok Whatever it is, I think it is tremendous because once upon a time, your ability to participate in the public discourse would have been determined by your socioeconomic circumstance and whether or not you had the means to convey your opinion and you were locked out of the public sphere based off of that. But now, given that there are very little barriers to entry, that has been, to use your word, democratized. And I think that's phenomenal and, and incredible. And I think it's a double-edged sword in the sense that almost precisely because of how communication and speech 
has been democratized not only in form, i.e. how you're able to participate in speech, but also in content through the advent of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and other frameworks. I think it's also at the same time made it abundantly clear to us as well the many ways in which speech is curtailed. Because now we can see it so clearly. Once upon a time, it might have been something which would have been obscured to us because the means of communication was so limited. And if speech was being obstructed or prevented, you wouldn't have known about it. But now when it's happening, you can see it. So I think the things that we are rightfully concerned about, we are privileged in some sense that we can catch it out so easily, precisely because we've made such advances in our ability to communicate and express ourselves freely. Um, and it's good that we catch them out as vigilantly as we do, because it's a yeah. testament to how dearly we hold these rights and freedoms. And I think that's the essence of the culture of human rights, right? It's not something that is ever complete. You know, uh, we don't know what we don't know. And as we advance, you know, we encounter new issues. And as you said, I think the premise of human rights is remaining vigilant and having the ability to rethink uh, what these rights should mean in a particular time, not what they meant in 1948. Exactly. So we know that the UDHR isn't a binding document, but it has influenced a lot of national legislation and policies. And in South Africa, it has affected our constitution, right? And I want to read what our constitutional court, the Constitutional Court of South Africa has said mm. about freedom of expression. It said in 2001, Freedom of expression, especially when gauged in conjunction with its accompanying fundamental freedoms, is of the utmost importance in the kind of open and democratic society the Constitution has set as our aspirational norm. Having regard to our recent past of thought control, censorship, and enforced conformity to governmental theories, freedom of expression, the free and open exchange of ideas, is no less important than it is in the United States of America, for example. It could actually be contended with much force that the public interest in the open marketplace of ideas is all the more important to us in this country because our democracy is not yet firmly established and we must feel our way. Therefore, we should be particularly astute to outlaw any form of thought control, however respectably dressed. So that idea of being a young democracy feeling itself has lent itself to some interesting cases in our context of South Africa that I want to get into. I want to start in 2011, because I think that's where the rub of freedom of expression and its limitations in our particular context really showed itself. And at that time, there was an interesting case at the Goodman Gallery of a painting by, I forget the artist, Brett. Brett Haring. Yes. He depicts the then president of South Africa, President Zuma, and his genitals are showing in this, in this portrait, in this painting. I remember seeing that portrait and not thinking much of it, right? Thinking it was interesting and thinking that I want to see more of this and I want to have a discussion on this. But I never once thought that it would be as offensive as it was later deemed to be by a large number of South African societies, right? Who thought that an elderly person should not be depicted in that way with their genitals hanging out and all of that. But 
the the image was more than just you know showing Zuma Zuma's genitals. It had deeper meaning in terms of where our democracy is, but it kind of highlighted the rub of the freedom of expression, the sense of morality, African morality. And I just want to get your sense of what you think was happening in our country in 2011 that people actually went to the Goodman Gallery and tried to destroy this painting, actually did. They poured black paint over it. And there was a court case that was brought by the ruling party at the time saying that it was offensive, it must be taken down. So I want to hear your your thoughts on that. I think it was, as you say, a flashpoint in South Africa's early democratic history and really put to the fore these questions of freedom of expression, whether it's an absolute right, whether it has some limitations, and if it does, what are those limitations? I think one of those limitations or what those limitations aren't is the right to offend. I think that it does include the right to offend. And I think the fact that it provoked such an overwhelming backlash and that people were unapologetically expressing this backlash is is testament to to the success of the painting and his testament and is an example of freedom of expression in action. I think the idea that the painting in itself should have been prohibited or was disrespectful and therefore beyond the bounds of respectable public discourse, I think that is an argument that to me doesn't hold much credibility. But I think it's understandable that that was people's knee-jerk reactions at the time, because to that quote from the Concord in 2001, we were still a young democracy feeling our way. We, we weren't used to seeing such unabashed, unapologetic expressions of political opinion via creative means, as Brett Murray did in that painting. And I think the fact that Brett Murray was so widely censored, or when I say censored, I mean he was widely critiqued, I think that was good. And and I'd encourage more of that. But to go so far as to think that the painting should have been removed or it should have been banned or anything like that, I think that that was a worrying indication. Let, of... me, let me ask you this, William. Did you think the painting or do you think there are elements of the freedom of expression that are un-African? And what does that mean to be un-African? Because sometimes a criticism against these universal human rights is that they are are un-African, help me understand that. Help our audience understand what that means and what you think is behind that sentiment. Right. I think what is behind that, I think it's weaponizing an idea of Africanness to serve a specific interest. I think, one, we should always be wary when any individual or group claims to speak on behalf of a continent with 52 countries and more than a billion people. You know, there is no single idea of Africanness and I would automatically be skeptical of anyone who claims to be to speak on behalf of, of all Africans. So I think it's it's a claim which in its very nature holds no legitimacy because who can speak of African culture or who can justifiably claim to understand and know what African culture is. So I think it's entirely cynical. And it was cynical in the way that it was used in that case. I think it's also dangerous because it portrays an idea of Africans 
as being a group that exists outside of human rights and liberties to say that freedom of expression is out of step or out of touch with African cultures to say that Africans aren't people who demand or need or are entitled to freedom of expression, which reifies precisely those generalizations and dehumanizations and inferiorizations that we were fighting against. The fight against apartheid was to say we belong to the community of human beings and so we deserve equal treatment and equal rights and liberties as any other human being. So I think to try and and reject these rights and protections on the basis that they're un-African is dangerous because it's the repetition of an idea that white supremacists were peddling 50 years ago and that some yeah. still peddle today. So I think that was very dangerous and, and I think it's a cynical um, use. The, the, the issue I always take with such simplification of this is Western and it's an African is that that's not the only binary that's happening you know, at a time in a particular issue. There's also a generational sensibility that may be different in that what my father or mother considers inappropriate or offensive or should be limited freedom of expression may not be the case for me and my sensibility because when I saw that painting, I thought there was nothing wrong with it. If if anything, I didn't even think it was as provocative as people thought that it was, right? And then I think the the, the other interesting thing is that uh, part of being African and and, um, an expression of our humanity as Africans is the permission for us to hold different views and to evolve and not to be stuck in a particular time of this is what it means to be African. And on on that same breath, I want to talk about another facet of this is that in the last, well, if we talk about apartheid, one of the ways in which people contravened apartheid era laws was through protest and singing and singing specifically struggle songs. And those struggle songs were normally in in native African languages where people could communicate with each other without being arrested. And in the early 90s, there was a particular struggle song, right, that says, kill the farmer, kill the boer. And the farmer and the boer in South Africa is considered to be the oppressor. So the essence of that song is kill the oppressor. And it's a militant song for, you know, legitimate reasons, because we were engaged in a racial war. We were engaged in a war against apartheid. And this song is from that tradition in that very militant uh, tradition. What is the place of um, that kind of expression that was born in a particular time from a particular mindset and from certain kinds of realities, can we still say, kill the boy, kill the farmer? There's been a court case around this, but I want to hear your view. And also, what is the place of people who want to express you know, their nationality, whether it's Africana nationalism through flying the old apartheid flag? What, what do you think is the place of that flag? Because I know that people differ on what should be done with struggle songs by, you know, the the oppressed majority in the country and what should happen to an apartheid era flag and how the minority still would like to have a relationship with that flag. What are your thoughts on that? Right. So it's a it's a good question and it's a difficult question to answer. I think it helps to perhaps kind of answer it in, in two parts. I think the one part, and you said we're going to talk about the court case, but maybe to preempt 
some of that discussion. The one part is what speech should be prescribed and what speech should be allowed. I'm a believer that as far as possible, we should have very clear, very objectives at very objective and very sparing limitations of speech. And I think that our constitution and legislative framework is successful in doing that in the sense that it prohibits speech that is hurtful, harmful, or incites harm, or promotes and propagates hatred. And how one makes a determination of whether or not speech falls into those categories, it's done on a, on a case-by-case basis. And in the Kill the Boer case brought by this Africana lobby group, Afroforum, was an interesting one because I think that the way they approached the case to me was a little bit surprising in the sense that they wanted the song to be prohibited purely based on its wording. And I think some people justifiably pointed out that there are some circumstances where people are singing the song with no real intent or literal meaning behind it. It's just an opportunity to reminisce about a different period of time and it's, and it's sung innocuously. That said, there are other circumstances where the song is sung where I think a, a reasonable person might interpret it to, to mean and involve some incitement, some propagation of hatred. And there have been cases, absolutely, when the song has been sung and that, that intention to, to be harmful or incite harm or pro- propagate hatred was absolutely clear. I mean, Afriform didn't make reference to some of these cases in the arguments that they advanced. Um, and so I think it's the answer to that question is, well, it depends. It depends on the circumstance when the song is sung by who and and for what reason. So, for example, you know, when Brendan Horan, I think is, is his name, who was this farmer who was murdered in the Free State, and there was a court case in Sienegal, and there were a bunch of economic freedom fighters, supporters, who in that charged environment were singing that song. I think absolutely in that circumstance, that song was sung with hatred, with intentions and sights with the propagation of hatred. And I, I would I would not accept it being sung in that circumstance. But it's very different in another circumstance if a bunch of anti-apartheid veterans break into a melody of struggle songs and this is one of the songs that they sing. So that's the first part of the answer is, well, what does the law say? Having said that, to the second part of your question, do I think songs like that and I think, sorry, just to say, on that, on the law, I think the courts found similarly about the display of the old apartheid flag. In there, they were but stronger in the sense that they said, you know, regardless of the circumstance, public display of the flag does propagate hatred in the sense that it harkens back to a time where Black South Africans were disenfranchised. So there's there's no way you could read any other meaning into that other than a longing for that time, because that's what the flag represents. And I agree with that. But to the second part about whether that song with the the old apartheid flag has any place in our post-democratic society, I would say not. I would say not. And I would say, you know, I'm I'm personally of the view that, you know, even if the song is sang as active reminiscence, I just don't see how it's productive in any sense. I don't see how thinking back to that time and specifically in how 
the oppressive regime was encapsulated in the figure of the boor or the farmer and singing that in today's context. I don't think that's that's helpful. And I think that I would use, given the opportunity, I would use my speech to discourage speech of that variety. And, and I think that we should encourage in society strong criticism of, of the use of that speech. And I think that you are seeing that and, and hopefully you know, one day there will be sort of social consequences associated with that, if not legal ones, depending on the context. But even if the context is innocuous, I just don't think it's it's helpful. Because I think, you know, in as much as I support free speech subject to the restrictions as expressed in our constitution and legislative framework, I think we can also speak of quality of speech. And some speech is speech that is not worth being heard, to put it metaphorically. And I think speech that harkens back to an era and harkens back to the animosities of a previous era. I completely agree with you. I think in our highly polarized world, I think that quality of speech needs to be, I think we need to concern ourselves with that and uh, think deeply about it, especially when you think of what are the priorities right now, what are the insecurities and if nation building, if trying to live up to some of these ideals in the constitution. I'm a nonviolent person. I believe in nonviolence. And I believe in nonviolence even in the face of the kind of racial war we were talking about mm. in that the way that I would have participated in that era, hopefully, I don't know, because I'm projecting here, it would have been in a nonviolent way. And it wouldn't have been in my nature to sing that song because there is an element that scares me about how that would change me to utter those words and how it would disconnect me from my humanity. But talking about polarization, William, I want to get to this part of, you know, what you mentioned earlier about technology and how that's affected uh, our freedom of uh, expression. It's expanded it and it's also limited it in very interesting ways. And um, you primarily work online. The publication that you're an editor of exists uh, in this climate. And I just want to read something to you again by Ayad or Ayad Akhtar, a very well-known writer. And he talks about, let's see here, he says... Daniel Kahneman's seminal seminal work in behavioral psychology has demonstrated the effectiveness of unconscious priming. I want to talk about this idea of unconscious priming online. Whether or not you're, he says, whether or not you're aware that you've seen a word, that word affects your decision-making. The technology is seeking your trigger, whatever draws you deeper and keeps you clicking. Nothing quite does it like outrage, moral outrage. Those we know Sorry, those we know are right to hate. Those we love because we are united together against those we know are right to hate. Driven by engagement and the profit that it generates, each side drifts further and further from the other. The space between us growing only more charged, only richer with opportunity of monetization. The cultural clash, and I would say it's not just the clash in America, has more electrical engineering behind it than we realize. That's a mouthful. And I'd love to hear your take about this growing divide between us online and how technology is uh, uh, affecting that or promoting that. And also who gets, I mean, when I think of the limitation of the right to freedom of expression and opinion, I'm thinking of book bans that are happening. I'm thinking of censorship online. I'm talking about algorithms and shadow bans where some people's content is seen and other people's not. And who makes that decision? So I'd love to hear you on all of that. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's a lot to consider and there's a lot to say. I think the place to start is picking up on this thread of how technology has expanded both the scope of political and free expression, but at the same time, it's also complicated. It's, I think, one thing to dispense with is the fiction that digital communications platforms are neutral territory, that there are a marketplace of ideas that we all arrive on where the rules of engagement are shaped by its users. That's not the case. These are ultimately massive technology companies who are owned and controlled by a small elite of shareholders and whose fundamental interest is maximizing the value of those platforms, ensuring as much usage as possible, ensuring as much opportunities for monetization as possible. And so, although on the one hand, one could say that the genesis of these platforms is that they were crafted in the sincere interest in wanting to facilitate greater communication between people, once they become marketized, once they become subjected to the logic of the market, they are trapped in that logic of the market. And so everything that we see in these platforms, as you were describing just now, that encourages polarization, encourages a retreat to echo chambers, encourages charged, hostile engagement. That is in the interests of these social media companies um, who want to make as much money out of possible off of the digital labor, effectively, of social media users, who we are the ones who are using the platforms, and we are the ones who are generating the value, but we are the ones who lack any kind of ownership or control or say in how they run. And I think... Nothing demonstrated that clearer than Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, or X, I should say, formerly known as Twitter, in which we just saw how, by executive fiat, so many aspects of the platform were being chopped and changed to suit his specific interests and and needs. And I think that's frightening. It's frightening to think that what we've done is we've replaced one big kind of actor, primarily in the the form of the state, because once upon a time, the state had a monopoly on communication because most of what we saw on the TV and what we heard on the radio was owned and controlled by the state. Most of who was allowed to be on TV and who was allowed to be on the radio was determined by the state somehow. And we've kind of transferred that monopoly into these unaccountable digital communications companies. So that's that's scary and I, I mean I don't know what the I don't know what the solution to that is. I mean obviously I think we should all be kind of fighting for their democratization. I think we should explore options that are open source collaboratively run and collaboratively created, but it's very hard to do that because now everyone has sunk costs because they've invested in these pre-existing platforms and and they have the communication monopoly and it's going to require a max exodus to try and encourage a shift to something else. 
And I think absolutely there is, there are efforts on these platforms to censor, to shadow ban, to curtail speech. But, you know, one, the, the kind of inadvertent, inescapable sort of beauty about these platforms, as we were discussing earlier, is that that will be seen. That's not something you can do and do quietly and just hope that a controversial opinion that you disagree with is going gonna, is gonna to go away. Typically, when that happens, we now have the tools in social media and on these platforms to detect it, to flag it, to make people aware that it's happening. Let, let me ask you about how you live online. You know, when you share an opinion, whether on Twitter or on uh, Africa's the country, how do you have any any sort of like rules for yourself as to what is a an opinion that is worth sharing? And because, you know, I, I tend to ask myself, am I the right person to say this? You know, am I ready to say it publicly and engage what happens after? And I want to know if you have the same kind of internal dialogue with yourself before you participate. And also, I think I want to know what is your take on cancel culture you know do you believe in it is it necessary and what should be sort of the parameters or the rules around cancel culture if you do yeah so answer the first question i mean i i don't have a digital existence i took a decision about three years ago to cancel all of my social media accounts twitter facebook instagram I have a friend who started an account in my name, but it's not it's not me. And I keep having to tell people, oh, that's actually not not me. It's a persona, but it's it's not me. And I took that decision primarily informed by personal reasons. I just I just don't think it's good for 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 wasn't good for my mental health. I don't really I started to become disaffected with whether or not it was a productive medium of engagement even for all of its all of its benefits i still felt that i think what i hoped for was a complementary or dual mode of engagement where life online was not or life in real with other people was not superseded by life online and started to feel like that was becoming the case where most political engagement was happening online and it was being sort of punctuated by bursts of talking to actual people, which is, I think, still the best way for, for human beings to relate to each other. So I don't, I'm not anywhere, I don't express my opinion anywhere except through my writing. And I think in terms of that, I'll only write something if I think I have something worthy of saying on the topic. And that's, not often. Sometimes I genuinely have nothing to say and I'm happy to admit I have nothing to say or I don't know enough on a certain subject matter and I need to do a little bit more research. I need to talk to more people, especially the people directly involved. And so I'll hang 10. But then if I do think I really do have something worth saying, I'll say it. And I mean, going back to this point about we need to also think about the quality of speech. I think we've kind of eroded our capacity as people to also, I mean, I don't want people to self-censor. I think I want to make that very clear. I don't want people to self-censor, but I think we could also be a lot more discerning about what we say and how we say it, as you were saying earlier as well. And I think that's an ability that we've kind of lost given that social media 
being gamified encourages this sort of unfiltered expression. And I think that's, that's a sensibility that's harder to have if you're talking to real people who are embodied and who you face. And I think because we don't do that so much, we've lost that ability. And then in terms of cancel culture, I think cancel culture is, is a very sort of thorny subject because it depends on what you mean by, by cancel culture and how one diagnoses the, the phenomenon. Because I think on the one hand, I do think it's real in the sense that I think over the last decade or so, we are seeing an escalation in the social and professional consequences of controversial speech or of sort of impropriety. And I think that it's created an environment where in some cases people are sort of self-censoring or are afraid to express themselves. But then again, I guess this is where I ask, like, what do you mean by cancel culture? Because there's a really great essay published by the British philosopher Mia Srinivasan on the London Review of Books called Can I Speak Freely? And what she does in that essay, she basically explores this moral panic that has been whipped up primarily by British and American conservatives about cancel culture and how it's taking over American and European college campuses and how nobody can say anything. But in the process, what they're doing is they're creating the institutional architecture to effectively crack down on speech that they don't like. So they have no problem with cancel culture if it's for the other side and they're creating all sorts of ideological and legal contortions to sort of justify preventing progressives on campus to speak on on certain issues that are thorny for them such as abortion rights or transgender rights or sexual harassment and so on and so forth and interestingly william the right lately with Israel and Palestine and what's happening is is clearly divided, even on cancel culture now, because a lot of students are, are receiving a lot of backlash on, and are being canceled. You know, they're losing future employment prospects and all of that. And some people on the right are saying people, you know, students, are, you know, they shouldn't be punished uh, if, you know, they don't hold certain opinions or haven't researched or saying certain things, that's part of youth, you know, and learning. So they shouldn't be canceled. And others are saying they should be canceled. So I'm, I, I find that very interesting to see in this moment a different response. Uh, One more point quickly. And I think it's great that you point out that hypocrisy. What I'll say is two things. One, I don't support a world where they're barring, so supposing you, you haven't met the requirements of hate speech or incitement, and you're just expressing a controversial opinion. I don't support the world where you can suffer professional consequences for that, i.e. you lose your job or you lose future employment prospects, whatever the reason is that is. At the same time, I do think it's equally an exercise of free speech for people to say that they disagree with your opinion or they think that your opinion is unjustified or immoral or whatever. And I don't think that is cancel culture. And I think that there's sometimes a conflation of the two where some people are calling something that cancel culture when it isn't. It's just people disagreeing as they're entitled to. 
But at the same time, cancel culture does exist. And I think that's something that should be objected and that often the right and conservatives are willing to look the other way when the recipients of that cancel culture are people that they disagree with. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Thank you for that. It's very clarifying on that. Um, Earlier this year, Rwanda, um, we all know um, Rwanda is coming up on the 30th anniversary of this horrific genocide, right, where close to a million people were killed. And as a South African in Rwanda, I just found myself in a in a context such a difference uh, to its um, historical conflicts. And I think Rwanda's genocide is not even comparable. I think, and I wouldn't try to compare what apartheid was yeah. um, in South yeah. Africa. There's still a tendon I felt. Um, there's still such a, a um, you feel something in the end. I went to the the memorial, uh, the genocide memorial, and there's a line there that said, this country was basically destroyed. It died. And we had to rise up from the ashes, right? And in rising up ashes, it's a country that's had to make uh, very serious decisions about what it wants to be now in response to that past and in order not, in order for that past not to happen again. And similarly, we've made decisions now, you know, through our constitutional commitments in response to the past and ensuring, you know, the line of never again. But we've made different decisions. Rwanda and Germany think are more closely related in how uh, they've constituted themselves after the Holocaust, after the genocide. And we've taken a, a different kind of path in how we've constituted ourselves post-apartheid. And I just want to hear you on, oh, some people may look at um, how Rwanda and, and Germany have approached things, especially around freedom of expression. There are things in those countries that you can't say about the Holocaust and you can't say about the genocide. Whereas in South Africa, there aren't those clear rules about what you can and can't say about apartheid on those different models. And um, if, if you have you know, dare I say, a preference, a a model that you prefer. And we're not saying that either are wrong. I think that when I was in Rwanda, certainly I had a sense of, I couldn't even grasp what it would mean to have lived through that, to survive on the other side. And um, I don't think, you know, uh, it would be appropriate to judge, you know, certain policy decisions that are made that come from such uh, a horrific yeah. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, one can absolutely understand it, understand the decisions that were taken, grasp the fact that they were in response to an incomparable moral horror and and that is that is tragic. But I think I think the danger and, and a lot of people have have made this point about post-conflict settlements elsewhere is that there's there's a danger equally in weaving into the fiber of the post-conflict society an existential imperative aimed at wanting to, at every cost, prevent the horror that was created and and providing almost executive fiat to the powers that be to determine what constitutes a threat to the survival of that society. There's a danger in in that and and there's a danger in that in fact creating the basis for obviously not at the same scale but 
creating the basis for the repetition of some of those moral horrors because if you what it does is is it creates a a closed society it creates a a sort of defensive posture society that feels that is fragile and and in that fragile core interprets kind of any threats to it as 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 being an an existential attack and you see that this in many places uh, around the world and see that in, in Israel Palestine as well to use one contemporary example and I think while you can while you can understand it while you can historicize it and while you can sympathize with it I'd I'd say that my preference to be frank is for what South Africa has done which is to create an open society because and that is the best recipe for preventing those horrors from repeating themselves because the problem was the denial of human rights to a subset of the population. And if you create a society where it is non-negotiable that everyone has the same rights, everyone has the same dignity, and everyone has the same opportunities for expression, what you do is you create a political culture of tolerance. That's how you create a political culture of tolerance. That's how you create a a different sense of, of belonging that is rooted in the premise of everyone being equal. And I think that if you do otherwise, I guess the the, the fear, if you do otherwise where the, the, the preoccupation is preserving order and, and, and national security, that's how you create an intolerance of difference. Because if you are someone who departs from what is deemed the kind of singular national agenda, then you become an enemy, right? And I think... The whole point is to transcend beyond friend-enemy distinctions mm. to, to create a political culture, foundations for society where those evaporate, where you create a society based on citizens um, and citizens who are fundamentally equal and citizens who can engage with each other. So I, I think, and I think you can see that playing out, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say, in, in Rwanda where, um, you know, dissent is, isn't tolerated and dissent that's even moderate and kind of just aimed at at the governance of of the state and 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 nothing like you know nothing like denial of of the genocide or or, or what happened yeah. and I think that even if it, even if it was to include that I think if you build that open and democratic society then you should trust your citizens to be able to hold to account people who try to desecrate the memory of an awful tragedy like a genocide or an ethnic cleansing but if you don't do that then what you have at the core of your societies, fundamentally mistrust. Mistrust, um, yeah. And I think that's always, always a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it creates such fragility. Uh, William, we've almost taken up an hour and I could talk to you forever. And just to, to yeah, wrap up our time together, I, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's a declaration, a non-binding declaration. But... I want to know what you think is possible in our lifetime. You know, what right would you like to see mm. become more than just a declaration, but become more real? You know, uh, I know that rights are indivisible, but uh, I, I do want to just uh, perhaps unfairly ask you to maybe highlight one that's top of mind that you would love to see become more real in the world. Mm. It could be in response to anything that's happening in the world right now. It could be an immediate thing that 
you want to take beyond just declaring and you want to see or you want to make real? I think I think what came to mind is the right to to citizenship. Hannah Arendt, who was the German Jewish political philosopher, once described citizenship as the right to have rights. And I think even still in the world today, a lot of dehumanization operates by dint of the fact that we deem some groups of people as less than citizens, whether it's those groups of people being actually stateless, as in they have no state that they can say they're residents of, or even groups of people who are members of a nation-state community, but who aren't treated as equal citizens in that community, who are always treated as an internal, temporary kind of permanent residence population, but who aren't treated as equal citizens. And I think that's, for me, what kind of permeates through a lot of the struggles we see over the last decade, whether it's Palestinian solidarity or even Black Lives Matter. There's a way in which Black Americans in the United States aren't treated as equal citizens. They aren't treated as people who have the same range of rights as as everyone else. And you can make that argument about Muslims in, in Europe. You can make that argument about so many places on the continent as well. And I think I'd want to see that. And I think I'd want to see citizenship as something that is treated beyond the nation state and is not circumscribed merely towards the nation state because that is still our idea of how citizenship is best secured. You need to have a nation state within a defined territory that has sovereignty to govern over you. But I think if we can start to think of a much more internationalist concept of citizenship that by being a human being in the world, wherever you are entitled to the rights to have rights, that those rights aren't bequeathed to you as charity at the behest of aid agencies or whatever, but that you are entitled to be a fully-fledged human being participating in a political community and shaping the future of that political community, whether you are indigenous to it or not, by simple fact of being there. I think that is something that I would really hope for. And I think that is, to me, the spirit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's about what do we aspire to as human beings universally And I think if we can aspire towards an idea of universal citizenship, then I think it follows. I love that. Um, You know, uh, Justice Cameron speaks of moral citizenship, where we are full and entitled members of society and disqualified by any feature of our humanhood. And I think you're speaking to that exact thing. And I think it's a powerful note to end on. Thank you, William Shorkey. Very much, Lando. It was an absolute pleasure to be here. Your questions were brilliant.